Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. This is Palm Sunday. And I said, it's Palm Sunday. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm making fun of somebody that I shouldn't be making fun of. Uh, I know we are under, under no biblical obligation to preach according to the church calendar. Uh, but we are free to. And I typically do that for Palm Sunday, certainly do it for Resurrection Sunday and for Christmas. Sometimes I'll do a, 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 a Thanksgiving message or something like that. That's not part of the church calendar. And I've done Pentecost and things like that. But uh, next week, obviously, I will be preaching a resurrection-themed message. And uh, it's actually something I've never shared before. Usually, there are themes that I return to. They are worth returning to. There are a couple sermons that I wouldn't mind just locking them in and preaching the same sermon every Easter, every Palm Sunday, and every Christmas. They are my favorites, but I try to mix it up and talk about uh, at least looking at it from different angles from time to time. Next week... I will be sharing something about Resurrection Sunday that I've never shared before. And it's kind of what I would call, for me anyway, a new apologetic for the resurrection. One more reason to be certain that the resurrection happened, in addition to the importance of it and celebration of it. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, On Palm Sunday, we celebrate and talk about the triumphal entry, which is uh, where Palm Sunday gets its name, which I'll explain in a bit. It's, and it's significant for a number of reasons. It's, it's, uh, there's fulfillment of prophecy, for one thing. But what always gets me is the magnitude and rapidity of the changes that took place in one week's time, from the time he came in to the city to the end of that week, is seriously one of my favorite sermon topics, very much worth looking at and remembering every year as we prepare for Easter. And please don't get offended when I say Easter. Just consider it shorthand if you want but don't make a big deal about it. Don't believe everything you've read about its pagan connections. If it's something that you're particularly concerned about or interested in, I'll send you an article or two defending the word, questioning its pagan origins, uh, drawing from the German for one thing. But for now, let's just agree that whatever the word Easter might used to mean, we own it now. Okay? Not all of you are okay with that, but... I'll try to be careful and say Resurrection Sunday every time, but you know the word Easter is in the Bible, in the King James Version. Okay. Might be a bad translation, but it's there. Anyway, uh, let's don't get into arguments about uh, terminology too often, all right? I can remember, I think I've got time to share this, and it's just a complete aside. We just, uh, I can remember many, many years ago, Uh, when we first started uh, going to special meetings and things like that. And then extended special meetings would pop up for men's groups, for youth groups, for women's groups. And so they'd say, well, the ladies advance is this weekend. The men's advance, the youth advance. And I always thought, well, that's just kind of a cool Christian term. It was years before I realized that people started calling them advances because retreats sounded like a lack of faith. I'm serious. I just got back from the RMAI uh, regional retreat we finally came around and realized it's okay to retreat. Retreat doesn't always mean running away from the enemy. It means withdrawing, 
coming aside, retreating to a quiet place. And it's okay, but man, we got all, we don't retreat, we advance, we'll never go on a retreat. So that's where we can't have uh, devil's food cake or deviled eggs anymore and crazy stuff like that. Anyway, I do want to talk about the triumphal entry. And while, of course, we absolutely will celebrate the resurrection, we don't have a Good Friday service this year. We were doing community Good Friday services for a while there, and it might be something we, we could be worth looking at in the future, at least having a Good Friday service here, uh, because we must talk about the crucifixion. If we talk about the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday, we have missed setting time aside to talk about the crucifixion. And so what I propose to do today is deliver a brief message with a Palm Sunday theme and spend the rest of this morning talking about the crucifixion. As most of you know, what we call the triumphal entry was when Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem to great acclaim from the multitudes that accompanied him, to great consternation of the multitudes that lined the streets watching him come in, especially the Pharisees and the Jews that were in charge. They were uh, throwing down pieces of their clothing, cutting branches off trees. And this is where we get Palm Sunday. We picture them taking palm fronds and palm branches and throwing them out on the street, essentially carpeting the road as he rides in on it. And as he rode into Jerusalem, the crowd shouted things like, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We will definitely come back to that. This was a week before his crucifixion. And I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. And we'll start with an easy question. Why did Jesus come to earth and take the form of man? What was his mission? If you could sum it up in one or two words, why did Jesus come? To die. Anybody argue with that? He came to die. He came to die for our sins, to die in our place, to give his life as a ransom for many, to be the final sacrifice, the final sin offering, putting an end to that system, fulfilling the old covenant, and introducing a new covenant. Now, he ministered for about three and a half years, and now we come to the very thing he ultimately came for. He was entering the last week of his life as a mortal man on earth, and the horrors of the crucifixion were staring him in the face. It's important to recognize this because you know this, but remember, he didn't ride into Jerusalem to great acclaim, and then he, four days later, five days later, he's shocked. What? Now they want to kill me? What's this about? He knew he was going there to die. This is what he was born for. This is where he's going to accomplish his mission. Three and a half years of ministry. And I guess here's what I'm trying to put myself in his shoes or anybody's shoes who's facing something like this. What would you do with one week to live? What did Jesus do? And what would you do? Maybe uh, just hole up somewhere with some friends. 
Share memories, try to prepare yourself for the ordeal, get psyched up, get calmed down, whatever you have to do to face this. But Jesus stayed busy. Between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion, Jesus cleansed the temple, told many, many parables. He contended with the Pharisees, had a conversation about taxes, render unto Caesar, right? He prayed for his disciples at length. He promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. He delivered the Olivet Discourse and instituted the Lord's Supper, and that's not the complete list. This was a busy week. Go back and read your Bibles, uh, and, and you'll be surprised at how many of the scriptures and stories about Jesus that you are already familiar with took place after the triumphal entry and before the crucifixion. I'm thinking especially of when the disciples are asking him all kinds of questions and fighting over position in the kingdom that they just know is about to be restored. And I might just tell them, hey, give me some room here. You know what's going to happen in a couple of days? Can you guys just leave me alone? Jesus needs some me time. After all, he was on a mission. The goal was in sight. He, of all people, deserved a little downtime. Let him, I hate to put it so crassly, but you know, when there's a big game coming up, you got to rest up for it. But he stayed busy. Look, maybe you have a particular vision for your future. Maybe you know what you're called to do, what you're capable of doing. And maybe it's not happening yet, but in the meantime, don't do nothing. Stay busy, stay engaged, keep preaching the gospel, keep living the gospel. Nothing you do between now and the fulfillment of your ultimate purpose is wasted if you submit it to the Lord. Stay busy in his name. Did you hear me? Nothing you do between now and the fulfillment of your ultimate purpose on this earth is wasted. But here's the other thing. We are indeed made in such a way that we need rest. We do need to come aside from time to time, retreat. But sometimes we take that too far, especially when we get older. I've earned my rest, I've worked hard, I've done my part, and who knows how long I have left. Now it's time for some me time. For the rest of my life, for my retirement, I want to focus on me. I want to enjoy myself. And I want to encourage you to continue to pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel. You can't lose. It's, it's like this, oh my goodness, when am I ever going to get to enjoy life? Number one, there is enjoyment along the way even as we stay busy. Almost everybody knows that. Number two, it's kind of like that great prophet Weird Al said, I'll be mellow when I'm dead. Uh, or I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'll rest when I'm dead. We'll be, because we don't stay dead, right? Our enjoyment, our ultimate enjoyment, what we're saving up for, what we're working toward is on the other side of this. And if we really believe this, we'll never feel ripped off spending ourselves completely in the service of Jesus Christ. So continue to pour yourself out for the sake of the gospel. Jesus had a clear vision, not only of his purpose, of his death, of his crucifixion. He knew what was coming, but he also had a clear vision of what lay beyond that, what lay beyond the cross. He knew that on the other side of that ordeal was resurrection and a glorified body and being back in glory with the Father and the joy set before him, you, me, 
all of us reconciled, redeemed, back in right relationship with God. So backing up, he rode into Jerusalem, and they are crying, Hosanna, meaning, save, oh save, save now. And this is my favorite part of the Palm Sunday message. Jesus had ministered for three and a half years. He had followers. He had multitudes of followers. Many at one time or another had left him. And what we have seen is those who were humble enough to receive his ministry embraced him as a prophet and embraced him as a healer. But... Not everybody was on board with the idea that he was the Messiah. They knew there was such a thing. They knew one day, and those who paid attention to the timeline knew that they were in about the right time. Was it really Jesus? But keep in mind that even his closest men thought that when Messiah comes, what he's, what's he going to do? Somehow he is going to throw Rome off of our backs and restore Israel to its rightful place uh, as head of all the nations. God's favored people living in his manifest power. They are like, get us back to the days of King David. And they wanted it badly. And they had seen enough in Jesus' ministry to finally believe this is the guy. He's the one who's going to save us. So guess what, Jesus? Save now. We are behind you. I think they were thinking, I think this mass... Uh, idea broke out that if we all just get behind him, we shout our faith and our confidence in him, as he's coming into Jerusalem, he'll take care of it. They all knew their, well, he'll do just what he did with Jehoshaphat, what he did with David on numerous occasions. It doesn't matter how big Rome is, this is the moment. Hosanna, save now. And what's so beautiful about that moment is he's riding through their midst on his way to save them now. They just had the wrong enemy in mind. He is on his mission to answer that cry, to save them, and he's going to do it in a way that would make them angry because he's not going to the cross to save them from Rome. He's going to the cross to save them from their sin. Save them from the one thing that plagues every member of the human race, the one thing that is keeping them from right relationship with God. And to do that, he had to die. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. A holy God cannot abide the presence of sin. Jesus had spent three and a half years reinforcing the message of the Old Testament. We talked about this very recently because we were talking about healing, remember? And he would tell people... Uh, uh, you know, just healed a man of years, decades of paralysis, and said, you know, congratulations. Oh, and by the way, don't sin again, or something worse could happen to you. What's he doing here? That's tortuous, unless you understand what Jesus' mission was. Sin is, this, is the underlying problem with everything else that plagues us as members of the fallen race. He's nailing down this Old Testament principle that you are not just, a, you are not, a good person who occasionally does bad things. You are corrupt. Your nature is corrupt. You think, make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself. You think that you're doing well by resisting 
the evil urges that come upon you from time to time to kill somebody or to commit adultery. Don't you understand how broken you are to even have those urges, even from time to time? Don't you understand that only a sinful, broken, fallen humanity would even think in those terms? This is what you need redeemed from, the nature. Again, there's only so much you can do to restrain these impulses, but we can. Self-discipline only goes so far. We can keep ourselves from acting on these desires, but what is wrong with us that we have these desires? We can't save ourselves from that kind of brokenness. Once we acknowledge that those tendencies are there, we must admit that we have to be rescued from the outside. And only the Creator is big enough to stand in the place, to die in the place, for the sin of all mankind. And He didn't have to do it, but He did. There are many things to consider when we look at the crucifixion. Many, perhaps most of you, have seen or read or heard a medical account or a graphic depiction of the crucifixion. I'm not going to do that today. But that information is readily available. I just want to focus on one, maybe two crucial. See what I did there? You know, when we talk about the crux of the matter or something being crucial or excruciating, that all of these words find their roots in the crucifixion, the cross. I want to focus on one or two crucial truths, and then we'll close. It should come as no surprise. You know, we, when we uh, talk about um, the harmony of the Gospels, it's always interesting to see how many of the Gospels record certain events, certain parables, and a lot, a lot of times all three synoptics will include an account of something, but John goes a different direction. Uh, and there's a handful of events that are depicted in all four Gospels, and it should come as no surprise that the crucifixion is one of those. And in none of the Gospels is it just casually mentioned. It is, this is the penultimate great major event of the Gospels prior only to the resurrection itself. You know, when I have uh, served communion, when we celebrate the Lord's table, uh, we almost always read the same scripture. And when we get to the part, it says, for as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. And one of my favorite things to point out, and I don't do it every time, but one of my favorite things to point out is if, if, we, are, if we talk about celebrating the Lord's table rather than observing the Lord's table, uh, should we really be focusing on his death? But this is what Jesus said. But one of the things I like to point out is we can, even in focusing on the death of Jesus, we can celebrate because his death was unlike any other death. He didn't stay dead. And I think that's fair and I think that's good, except we really do need to take a breath, take a moment, and remember something. He did 
die. He really did die, and it was a gruesome death, a painful death. If he hadn't, I'd be lost. You'd be lost. We'd all be lost. We would be left with a bill we had no way of paying. At the cross, my guilt, my sin, all of it, and all of yours were laid on Jesus. And God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. And he endured all the punishment, all the judgment that would have been poured out on us. You see, the horror of the cross makes me at least start to understand the horror of my sin. Let me say that again. The horror of the cross allows me to start to understand the horror of my sin. If my sin isn't that bad, I don't need something as horrible as the cross to pay for it. But the fact that the cross is a horror makes me understand that even if I don't think my sin's all that bad, it is. We are surrounded by so much evil, grotesque evil, that it is sadly easy to take our own sin seriously. Sorry. Take our own sin less seriously. But if the only sin in the whole world was no worse than yours the whole world would still need a Savior. You need to understand that. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he famously wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, uh, or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is a man who was highly educated. I've, I've read com comments from scholars who suggest that Paul had the equivalent of two PhDs. And you know, he had cross-cultural experience, he had language skills and theological background to explain anything, and he did. He did a lot of that in his letters. But here he writes that when he was with them, he determined to know nothing save Christ and him crucified. That bothered me for a long time. You're saying that you were with these Corinthians and you determined, not, you know, he knew what he knew, but he considered this is the focus of my message while I'm with you. He's writing stuff to him later that goes beyond this, but he's, remember when I was with you, I was determined. I had one message, Jesus Christ was crucified. And I used to read that and I'm thinking, what? why not the resurrection? Aren't you determined to know two things? Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. Why focus on the crucifixion? Only. He was making sure they understood why the crucifixion was necessary. You know, in Acts chapter 17, it's, uh, it's, uh, every person who's into apologetics loves this because Paul is uh, hanging out in Athens. He wasn't called to Athens. He's not there on a mission. He's just waiting. And, but he figures, I'm not just going to cool my heels. So he goes down to the marketplace. He's there on Mars Hill, and he starts engaging the philosophers who would meet there and just discuss some new thing. 
And so uh, he's looking around for an entry into the conversation, and he sees a statue that in the inscription says, to the unknown God. And so he starts sharing the gospel with them. This is the God. I notice that you're very religious because look at all these idols. I even notice you have a statue to the unknown God. This is the God I present to you. And he starts sharing the gospel. And he's got their attention. He knows what he's talking about. He's got the cross-cultural experience. He's got the language. He's even familiar with their poets. And then he gets to, toward the end of his, his brief message there and says that God has put his stamp of approval on the man I'm talking about by raising him from the dead. And what happened when he mentioned the resurrection? Anybody remember? Did they fall down and get saved? Did they give glory to God? They mocked him. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Odd thing to include? Now some believe, they even names them, but it's just a handful of people. And others said, yeah, we'll hear some more of this later. The, the legendary missionary, Don Richardson, makes a very powerful case that Paul made a mistake here because he brought them, he's bringing them along, introducing the gospel, showing how Jesus fits into the Old Testament, how he fits into even their own legends, and then makes the crucial mistake of proclaiming the resurrection without explaining first why Jesus had to die. Paul doesn't make that mistake in Corinth. He goes in there right off the bat and explains to them how desperately wicked they are and why Jesus had to die. Utterly sinful. And for what it's worth, a great deal of their sin was sexual sin. He spells it out in uh, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Go ahead and read it if you dare. And in order to share with them the glorious resurrection and salvation of Christ, he had to make them understand that the, th that the sins they had become comfortable with required blood. That they were, whether they knew it or not, crying out for judgment with their lifestyle. The Corinthians were. It's kind of like... Uh, okay, you're telling me this is sin, but and maybe it is sin, but how bad a sin is it really? What's wrong with a little fornication? And Paul answers by preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. He doesn't argue with them the logic of why this particular sin is bad. He's just telling them, you're asking me how bad it is? Here's how bad it is. Jesus was crucified to save you from it. And nothing else would have saved you from a little fornication, a little adultery, a little perversion, a little extortion. It's all that bad. You know, there's been a lot of argument over the years, over the centuries. There's been a lot of hatred, a lot of prejudice, and a lot of blood spilled over this question. Who killed Jesus anyway? Because the Jews will say the Romans killed Jesus. The Christians, and I use that term loosely in this case, will say the Jews killed him. The Muslims will say he didn't die. We get a little closer to the truth. Well, actually, we get a lot closer to the truth, but we're not there yet. If we say this, I did. My sin killed Jesus. Well, my sin was the reason that Jesus had to die. But the truth is this. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me because I laid down my life. It 
that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes this. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our most unlovable, when we were utterly lost, not even calling for help, not even crying out for rescue, that's when Christ came to the rescue and died for us. Before we even knew we needed a Savior, Christ died for us. Utterly undeserving of salvation, but Christ died for us. No sin is too small to need saved from. Do you understand that? But also the flip side of that, please understand there's no sin too big to keep you from being saved. There's no sin so big that Christ crucified is not enough. Praise the worship team, come up here as I, as I begin to wrap this up. And this is crucial. Why don't you stand up with me? If, you, if you're able. And let, let, me, let me describe it this way. And I've, I've shared this before. And I, it would just be a tough thing. It's a tough thing for me to imagine. Because imagine knowing that maybe coming to the, the realization for the first time that you can't save yourself but knowing you need a Savior. And Jesus comes before you and says, I'm glad you recognize the depth of your lostness, the gravity of your sin. I'm glad you realize you need a Savior. I am willing to die for you right now. I will go to the cross and die a torturous death for you, and it'll save you. Do you want me to do that for you? Do you understand that no matter how badly you need that, that's a tough offer to take him up on in those circumstances? It's like when Pilate said, you know, is this, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And what did the Jews say? His blood be on us and our children. They didn't know what they were saying. They're saying we'll accept the blame for this. But that's exactly what they needed, his blood on them. Be a tough thing. This is the beauty of the salvation Christ offers. He doesn't come before you and say, only way out of this is for me to die for you. Are you willing to let me do that for you? 
What's he come before us saying? It's finished. It's paid for. I've been there. I've done that. It's over. The price is already paid. Don't you want it? How can you look at me? How can you know how much I loved you and refuse this gift? Knowing what I went through to save you, why would you be afraid of making me your Lord? Didn't I demonstrate to you how much I have your good in mind when I hung on the cross for you? You think I'm willing to go to the cross to save you and now I'm going to abandon you? Now I'm going to drag you through the mud? I saw you at your worst when you absolutely deserve to be dragged through the mud. And right now you still do. But I love you anyway. I died for you anyway. Now I'm offering you a brand new life. Who doesn't want that? Who would deny Christ in those circumstances? I really don't want you to go through that for me, Lord. I did already. In that sense, in the sense that he's already done it, your name is already written in the book of life. Don't erase it. Don't have it erased by refusing this gift. I think that's a theologically safe way of looking at it, by the way. That when you come face to face with the truth and you refuse, you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father, Father in heaven. Your salvation was already bought and paid for. And now you've refused, you've refused it. So here's my question. Do you want to make that decision today? I never want to assume, even though I don't see a completely unfamiliar face here, I never want to assume that everybody has understood. There are children who have uh, made confessions of Christ at a very young age, and I absolutely believe that God saved them. He meets us where we are. But sometimes we come to a new understanding, and you're like, I'm not sure I knew what I was getting into, but I still want to be into it. And if you want to call that a rededication, a recommitment, I'll open the altars for that as well. But if you've never appreciated everything that went into your salvation, maybe until this moment, maybe God, maybe the light flipped on, you're like, oh, now I see the connection with the cross. Do not miss next week. We're not going to say, okay, we got through the unpleasant part, now let's talk about the resurrection. We're going we're to tie these things together in a way that I hope is fresh and exciting for you. But right now, does anybody need to take Jesus Christ up on the offer that he has made? I have bought you a new life. I am offering it to you today. Let me pray and give that invitation one more time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you more than anything right now for the cross. For the cross of Jesus Christ. For his death in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life as a ransom for me, for us, for many, for the world. It's my prayer now, Lord God, if there's anybody who needs to know that like, and to realize that, uh, that the light of revelation, of, uh, that the illumination of your word would, would be manifested in their hearts and their minds right now, 
so that they would know what they need and that you would grant them a sense of urgency in this moment, the wisdom to take you up on that offer, the humility to express their need, and the boldness to receive it now in Jesus' name. If there's anybody who needs to be saved, born again, to, to accept that life that Jesus Christ offers only through his death on the cross, would you please come up here right now and let me pray with you? And come over here on this side. If you want to give, if you want to say, ah, I know, I've never really doubted my salvation, but wow, that's, that's the Lord worth serving, and I'll admit I haven't been serving him. I want to recommit my life to him today. Come over here, and I want to pray for you as well. Anybody today? Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.